I'm your host, Alex Padron, and my promise to you is that today's episode will be the best episode ever. Einstein once said, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. If you hadn't noticed, we are thinking all the time. From the moment you wake up to when you go back to bed, our minds narrate what goes on around us. The pronoun I we typically refer to is always talking to itself and is never content. It always has a problem with something. Honestly, when was the last time you really had nothing bothering you? Before you had your current problem, there was a different problem. And before that one, there was one before. If you've caught on to the game your mind likes to play, you'll realize that after this problem's gone, another awaits. What I want to bring to your attention is that most of the problems and suffering we've experienced throughout life, at least the overwhelming majority of it, has been because of our thinking. In some form or another, our problems and our suffering can all be traced back to our thinking. And it's thinking that I want to explore in this episode. At the heart of this episode is the idea that the thinking mind is a useful servant, but a terrible master. Here's a metaphor for what our relationship with the thinking mind is like. Imagine not knowing what a knife is, and you're given one for the first time. You look around and you see others using their knives, and so you copy them. The problem is that those around you hold the knife by the blade. So, wanting to do a good job and to fit in, you too grab the knife by the blade. Now, not only does this make the knife itself less functional for cutting, but it makes it painful and it produces suffering for you and for those around you. Our culture values a sharp knife. It doesn't value how you use your knife, though. We like to compete with others, so you're proud of having a really sharp knife. But the sharper the knife, the deeper it cuts when it's grabbed by the blade instead of by the handle. And you keep grabbing the knife by the blade because no one's mentioned or modeled other ways of interacting with the knife. This is a metaphor of how we use our minds and how we interact with our minds. And I know that this has been true for me in most of my life. Now, if someone asked you if you own a car, you might say, yes, I own a 2019 Dodge Ram. But you don't think you are your Dodge Ram, do you? But we can safely assume for most of us, we're not our car. It's something that belongs to us. 
And likewise, if someone asked what shoes you were wearing, you might tell them Allbirds. But you clearly realize you are not your shoes. You were you before you had those shoes, and you will continue to be you after those shoes are worn out. The same is true with our thinking. We have thoughts, but we are not our thoughts. We are not our thinking. We're not the internal chatter and the inner dialogue we have. We're aware of our thinking. We're aware of our internal dialogue. You were you before the thinking mind offers up a thought, and you will continue to be you after that thought disappears. So if we get curious about our thinking mind, if we get curious about our inner chatter and pay attention to it, we might realize on one level all of the thoughts we're thinking. And we can capture all of these on paper to really look at what's going on in there before the thought leaves us for another thought. For instance, let's say you are comfortably sitting on your couch reading a book. You're perfectly safe at home with nothing around you to harm you in any way whatsoever. And you happen to check your phone only to find out that the stock market's crashed. And immediately, a powerful stream of thoughts emerges from the mind. Now, if we're really curious and can detach from the thoughts that arise in that moment of realizing the stock market's crashed, we might notice some interesting things. One being, we might realize that nothing around us has changed. We are physically safe. The only thing that's happened is a change in our thinking, and that's driving a response so strong in our body that it's pushed it into a fight or flight mode. Thought itself made us feel afraid for our physical safety, so much so that it drove us into a full-blown panic, despite clear evidence of the environment around us being completely safe and unchanging. The situation itself, in this case the stock market crashing, is really inherently neutral. It just is what it is. And the thoughts produced by our minds mapped a new model of reality onto actual reality. Despite evidence that we are completely safe in our couch, we perceive the situation as it no longer being safe, according to the inner chatter that's emerging at the moment. Now, before I go on, I want to introduce a simple model of the behavioral areas of the brain. So the brain itself is insanely complex, but for our purposes, we can think of the brain in three functional behavioral layers as a working model for it. The oldest part of the brain Layer one, also called the reptilian brain, is the most ancient, and it's the part of the brain that we share with reptiles. It's ancient, and it emerged millions upon millions of years ago, and it's situated at the base of the brain. This part of the brain is involved in everyday shopkeeping. It helps regulate body temperature. It helps release hormones and helps regulate them and so forth. The second layer of the brain is what's often called the limbic system. 
It's the emotional part of the brain, and it's the area that we don't share with reptiles. At least I've never heard of lizards having rich emotional lives, but maybe you have. This is the part of the brain that handles fear, anxiety, and arousal. And it's the same part of the brain that gets activated when a gazelle hears a noise in the bush. It's grazing next to you in the savannah. And now the final layer of the brain is the cortex. Layer three. This is the part of the brain that's new and shiny. It does the executive functions like long-term planning and emotional regulation. All animals have a bit of cortex, but it isn't until you get to primates and then apes and then us that you really see a significant amount of it. These brain layers interact with each other. So using the simplified model of the brain, layer two, for instance, the limbic system can interact with our reptilian brain and it can activate it. So if you're a male giraffe or a bull, as they're called, and wish to mate with a female, but encounter a large, scary bull who has the same intentions and is threatening you, the emotional state from the limbic system will activate the reptilian brain and cause an increase in heart rate. And that increase in heart rate will come not because of a regulatory change in the body, but because of an emotional reason. So what's an example of layer three, the cortex, commanding the lower layers? Well, in this case, you're sitting perfectly safe on your couch at home, seeing and reading pixels from your rectangular device, and you encounter the circumstance, which is again, inherently neutral. The stock market crashed. The cortex is turning this abstract concept in which you are not physically in danger into an emotional response by activating the limbic system. And that emotional response is triggering the reptilian brain to produce a flood of hormones and to increase your heart rate. Now in later episodes, I'll discuss how we can create a conscious control over the layers of the brain. For now, I want to drive home a really simple, but I think profound point that's emerged from how we understand the brain to work. And that's that thoughts create feelings. And that is fascinating. And that is also good to know. Because if we can change our thoughts and our thinking about circumstances, we can also change our feelings about them. Let's notice what happens in the body when we have a strong reaction to that situation we were working with initially, the stock market crashed while we're sitting safely in our couch at home. In paying attention to the body, you might notice that whenever energy builds up inside, the stream of the inner dialogue we have strengthens. Isn't that curious? So if you could imagine yourself in that situation, you're safe at home in your couch and you've invested some considerable sum of money into the stock market and now it's crashed. If you're able to pay attention to what's going on in the body, you might notice that the pent up and built up energy that's being created 
is causing the stream of your inner dialogue to strengthen. So in the moment your brain sends you into a panic over that neutral circumstance of the stock market crashing, the density and the rate of your inner dialogue increases. And it happens for the same reason a pressure cooker whistles. The stream of thoughts is the whistling pressure cooker releasing pent-up energy inside. Now, if we examine the behavior of our thinking and notice when it arises more strongly and are curious enough, we might realize that the inner dialogue we have in that moment is trying to do something really interesting. Our minds interpret events in relation to how things were in the past and how they should be or ought to be in the future, according to the mind. It's the mind's way of helping us navigate the world. The mind, in a sense, is pre-processing reality for us. And by verbalizing our experience mentally, the mind transfers our direct experience into our thinking. And in our thinking, we can control the experience of reality that we're having. In order for it to fit well in our mind and in our mental model of how things ought to be. So long as we're thinking, we're experiencing a mental model of reality. We recreate the world in our mind because we can control our mind, whereas we can't control the world. If the world isn't the way we like it, we create an internal narrative about what's going on. We create judgment and we complain, or in the above case, we panic because what is, is not what you expected it to be. And that judgment, that complaining, that narrative that we build about our direct experience gives us a sense of control over reality. This internal narration of the world makes one feel empowered and it releases this pent-up energy. So we don't really experience reality as it is. We experience our thinking about reality projected onto reality. And by projecting our thinking onto inherently neutral circumstances, we create mind-made catastrophes for ourselves and we suffer over it and we produce suffering for those around us. In the mind's attempts to control that which is outside of its control to control, we suffer. So let's go back to that situation. You're safe in your home, sitting on your couch, reading words from your rectangular device that say, stock market crashed. And what you make that mean, in other words, you're thinking about the situation creates the same response in the body that a gazelle might feel when it's chased by a big cat in the savannah. But nothing around you's happened. Thought appeared in the mind. If you had the wherewithal to look around and take a step back for a moment, you'd realize how utterly and completely safe you are. Someone else might read the same headline as you, on their rectangular device and continue scrolling. What we experience is our thinking about inherently neutral circumstances projected onto those circumstances. Imagine for a moment that this inner dialogue 
you have was externalized and given a body and a name. Imagine that your internal dialogue was a friend of yours in real life. Let's call them Bob. How many times has Bob been so far off the mark with the advice he's given you? Would you continue going to Bob for advice given his track record? Bob might tell you about how you should panic that the stock market crashed, that you in this moment really aren't safe, that whatever emotional state you wish to inhabit, panic is the most appropriate one for this situation, that you should be riddled with anxiety, stress, and possibly shame for not having done something earlier about the stock market crashing. If we know how Bob reacts to these things, would we continue to go to Bob for advice on how to live a joyful and meaningful life? Just take a look at Bob for a moment. Look at how judgmental and easily provoked and scared he is. Look at how critical of himself he is and how controlling and how fearful he is. If you have a modicum of rationality, you'd be wise as to whom you'd seek advice from. And Bob wouldn't be on that shortlist. For some of us, our lives are not our own. Bob's in control. We are all ears for what Bob has to say about other people, about the world, and about the circumstances we find ourselves in all the time. Bob wants to be in control of everything, and he gets upset when things don't go the way he imagines them to. And we obediently listen to Bob and do as he says. Bob is always upset about something, and there's always a problem for Bob. Haven't you noticed? How many times has Bob been completely off the mark and wrong? How many times has Bob told you about all of the terrible things that could happen and convinced you to believe his every word. Bob will convince you of all the things you should do. You sit down from a long day of work, tired, and Bob is there to remind you, you left the heater on upstairs. That's why the energy bill is so high. Bob will then remind you of your unpaid bills. He'll then remind you to call your sister. Oh, and he brings up that conversation you had with Stacy earlier in the day. What did she mean by that? Bob will then introduce three alternative scenarios you could have done in hindsight in that conversation with Stacy. Oh, and don't forget, you have to call your parents tomorrow, says Bob. Never mind being tired. Bob knows just what to say and when to say it. Hey, what's for dinner, says Bob. You should make, wait, is your partner cooking tonight or are you? What's on Netflix? Ah, the backyard screen door broke from last week's storm. Bob reminds you, you have to get it fixed. And on and on and on. What rest are you actually getting sitting down from a long day's work with Bob chiming in nonstop about an ever-growing to-do list he continues to add items onto? We're holding onto the knife by the blade. And the deeper it cuts into us, the harder we squeeze. Yet we don't stop to think 
maybe we should interact with this knife differently and see how it makes us feel and see what that does to Bob. Here's a metaphor for this. A man once saw another man hitting himself repeatedly on the head with a hammer. And so he asked, why do you continue doing that? The man with the hammer said to him, because it feels good when I stop. That's our relationship with Bob in a nutshell. That's why we hold onto the knife from the sharp end and cut ourselves with it repeatedly. Not knowing that there's a better, more functional way to use the knife. The only true problem we all have is Bob. Our incessant, constant, nonstop, one thing after another thinking. This is the one true problem we all face. It's this incessant chatter Bob produces that's the real problem we face on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Everything else is a circumstance we find ourselves in. It's only when Bob chimes in and we believe Bob that we create suffering and problems for ourselves and those around us. I want to invite you to try some experiments out and notice what you notice. Now, most people think they exist somewhere between the six inches of skull they have, a little mini-me that lives somewhere in the space between their skull. Well, we can test this and bring our attention to it. Right now, place your attention on three objects in your field of view. It can be anything, so long as you can clearly discern them from the background. Can you see them clearly? Now, rest your attention on them for a moment and notice them. Now, turn your attention inward toward the looker. Can you find the looker, the seer? Where are they? Where's Bob? Try to find Bob right now. The existence of Bob, this mini-me inside the skull somewhere, is supported and created by the stream of thoughts that narrate our experience. When we look for Bob, there's no one there. 